The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop pinching your pennies and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 520 with guest Yuval Lowy, recorded live Wednesday, January 6th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who went to the drugstore to get his wife a box of iPads, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, Richard and Carl. Anyway, you slice it, still comes up .dot net rocks. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What can we say? It's winter time. It's past the holidays. We're just settling into the routine again. And uh, what better way to kick it off than with better no framework? All right. And uh, today I'm really gonna talk about a pattern well not really a pattern but it's it's a class that implements a pattern oh it helps you implement a pattern it's the weak event manager class in system.windows weak event manager yeah and uh this is a base class for the event manager that's used in the weak event pattern it adds and removes listeners for events or callbacks that also use the pattern so here are the remarks i'm just reading here the principal reason for following the weak event pattern is when the event source has an object lifetime that is potentially independent of the event listeners. Using the central event dispatching of a weak event manager allows the listeners' handlers to be garbage collected even if the source object persists. Cool. By contrast, a normal event hookup using plus equals causes the potentially disconnected source to hold a reference to the listeners, thus keeping the receiver from being collected in a timely fashion. One common situation where the lifetime relationships between sources and listeners suggests the use of this pattern is the handling of update events coming from sources for data bindings. The pattern can also be used for callbacks as well as for true events. So there you go. And, and there's more information on it in the documentation. The only problem I got with that is the name. It sounds bad. Well, you got weak references too, right. which are sort of easily easily resurrected. You know. Yeah. So it's that same sort of thinking. Yeah, it's that same sort of thing. Okay. May, it should call it maybe loose. Loose would be better. Loose would be better. Yeah. Or light. Light. Yeah. Light, light makes it sound good. Right? See, they should call us before they name these things. <laughs> maybe they should. I know. So who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, I got a great email for you, Bob. You're going to love this. Okay. Dear Carl and Richard, I am so thrilled with the Better Noah Framework segment in show number 509. Oh, uh, yeah. 
When I heard that complex numbers were now implemented in .NET 4.0, I almost leaped out of my headphones to get started on implementing the code in my fractal program. Fractals. The thing that I was having trouble with when working with complex numbers was the counterintuitive equations that are used when multiplying and dividing them with each other and normal numbers. I had perfected the inner workings of the fractal, but now was working on the performance, and I'm excited to see how the .NET code holds up on a performance standpoint. Currently, I'm in the ninth grade. Wow. <laughs> I'm 14 years old, and I've been an avid fan of .NET Rock since my dad, Daniel Simmons, <laughs> aired a, a few times a while back on the Entity Framework. I've been listening to you guys ever since then and have learned so much from the podcast. Thanks for this great source of coding information and keep up the good work. What a good kid. Keith Simmons. You know, you're in ninth grade. You're probably not drinking coffee, so we're going to send you a hoodie. Yeah, we're going to send him a hoodie. Absolutely. (laughs) I like the idea that there's a 14-year-old guy out there who's thrilled to death with complex numbers. That makes me happy. That really does. It (laughs) restores my faith in humankind. There you go. (laughs) Thanks, Keith. We're going to send you a hoodie. And uh, if you've got some questions, concerns, ideas for a show, just want to tell us how you're using Better Know a Framework, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Hey, I still need your help here uh, in voting for my band, the defraggers at shrinkster.com slash one CCC. Listen to the th- new theme song for Foxwoods casino. And, uh, we, it's only two minutes long and then just give us a thumbs up, please. I'm begging you. The system is broken. There's thumbs down available too. So what people are doing is they're getting all their buddies to thumbs up us and thumbs down everybody else, which sucks because if you do the math, nobody wins. But, you know, that's the game we have to play. So at least give me a thumbs up. I wish, really wish you would. And uh, shrinkster.com slash 1ccc. And by the way, the band's pretty good. Our guest today is Yuval Lowy. He is uh, not a stranger to the show and also a good friend. He's a software architect and the principal of iDesign, specializing in .NET architecture consulting and advanced training. Yuval is Microsoft's regional director for the Silicon Valley, working with Microsoft on helping the industry adopt .NET 4.0. His latest book is Programming WCF Services, 3rd edition, from O'Reilly 2010. Yuval participates in the Microsoft internal design reviews for future versions of .NET and related technologies. Yuval published numerous articles regarding almost every aspect of .NET development and is a frequent presenter at development conferences. Microsoft recognized Yuval as a software legend as one of the world's top .NET experts in industry leaders. Hey, Yuval, how are you? Always good, guys. Always good. I love the software legend thing because every time I think of it, I think of TechEd Dallas. Cardboard cutouts. Your cardboard cutout all over the place. Yeah, and I actually had a repeat of that in TechEd Europe and Barcelona. Oh, no. And Yeah, and, and they actually put little pictures of the legends underneath the... Uh, lunch trays and it was absolutely hilarious they sign up on the books at the bookstore um i remember i actually kind of like had to fight my way to get to the bookstore all these people lining up and line was basically circling the bookstore twice and then they dawned on me they're all waiting for me (laughs) (laughs) awesome yep so well yeah you've New version of .NET coming, and uh, what have you been working on these days? I've spent, I would say, the last uh, um, two years or so doing mostly two things as far as new technology. I was working on a service bus, trying to make sense of it, streamline it, helper classes, the usual stuff. And what was your conclusion on that? Um, enormous potential. You need, you need it yesterday. Although I think there's... Uh, there's definitely some rough spots as far as pricing, messaging, and such. Um, and the other things I was working on is the third edition of my uh, WCF book, bring it up to speed with uh, WCF 4.0, the new features and new techniques that I've been working on over the last uh, two years or so since the second edition. Now, um, you, did a, you did a session at Connections. Done it, I, I don't know if you've done it a couple of times, but you definitely did it the last time. And I think... It, it was a, your your basic argument is that people should make every class a WCF service, right? Um, if you take it to the ultimate conclusion, then that would be the conclusion. Yes. Well, okay. So, 
I, I, got, I, I can only say, I got to hear this. Okay. It, it takes a while to actually go through the arguments because it's a bit contorted. Mm-hmm. You can't just actually point at a semicolon and say, aha, because of that you make every class a service, okay? But um, if you look at, um, at all the features that WCF gives you, and it's a long feature, it's almost like 20 features from security to, to uh, transaction propagation to managing timeout and reliability, mm. tracing, logging, instrumentation, managing the instances, handling the errors properly, uh, dealing with data, with data versioning, with synchronization, with remote calls, interoperability, queuing, uh, web services, service bus, discovery. These are truly wonderful stuff. And if you look at what most developers spend the bulk of their effort on, they actually spend it on this. Most developers spend the bulk of their time in both folks on the plumbing aspects of the application. They don't spend it adding value to customers. At the end of the day, developers are not developers. They're actually plumbers. A small portion of the time is spent on features, and the rest is kung fu with the plumbing. And... It, it actually gets worse as the application goes into maintenance because then the overhead is actually compounded, release to release. And at some point, developers say, oh, we can't take it anymore. We have to take it outside and shoot it in the head. And we start again. This time, we'll do, we'll do the plumbing right. But fundamentally, it's the same application, maybe a few new features, but they just cannot add the features because the plumbing is killing them. And, and I mean, when you talk about plumbing, you're just talking about inner service calling, or is it just the fact that so much of our code is that same stuff over and over and over again? No, forget about services. I'm just talking about, if you look at any line of code developers, right, it always falls in two bins. One is business logic, features, things that customers care about. The other right. one is the glue, the glue that holds the application together. You're saying there's more, a lot more plumbing in WCF than has anything to do with communications. No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that if you look at an average application, every line of code falls in two bins, either business logic features or glue. Glue is remoting, synchronization, security, uh, memory, garbage collection, all that crap, okay? Things that nobody cares about. No customer or manager actually care about these things. And yet, this is where developers spend the bulk of the time and the bulk of the effort. And this has been the case in Stami Memorial. It doesn't matter if you go back to C, C++, COM, .NET. It doesn't matter. It's always the same. Okay? This is just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Developers, and, and the reason is it's not just a number of lines of code. It's the uh, overall ownership because most business logic issues are relatively easy to own, easy to address. I mean, it's, it's along the lines of, oh, I should have done an I++. So you only put the I++. Oh, I should have inserted to this table if I'm deleting from that table. You don't, you go and put the insert. It's no big deal. Most plumbing issues look like this. I come on this thread, and if I haven't found the transaction yet before I did the authentication, okay, now what? And developers are simply ill-equipped in, 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 in equipped to deal with the plumbing. They're not security experts. They're not transaction experts. They're not remote call experts. They're not synchronization experts. Mm. They're not being paid to actually do the plumbing. They're being paid to put features. They have zero incentive of actually getting better at, at uh, plumbing. Developers are always going to be given enough time just to do the quickest, dirtiest piece of plumbing they can possibly get away with. As a result, they don't do any, any decent effort at it. They only solve the, the garden path scenarios. They don't test the, case, the, 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 the edge cases. So plumbing basically sucks in most applications. That's where the defects are. That's where the overall cost of ownership hides. And that's, that's always the case, regardless of technology. If you look at WCF, what WCF really is, is a set of ready-made plumbing that take care of most, if not all, of the plumbing needs of most applications. Regardless of whether they're communicating or not. It, it doesn't matter at all. I mean, it's like saying that .NET is about web services. Right? Mm. That's what Microsoft was saying at the time, too. It's nothing to do with web services. It simply is a superior way of building applications compared to C++, right? That's what .NET really is. And so WCF is the same thing. It's just the superior way of building applications, just a ready-made set of plumbing. Okay? So far, so good? Yeah. Not, I'm, not even say, I'm not even saying services yet. I'm just saying right. it's just a better way of building applications. Okay? So ideally, if you start itemizing it, and there's like these 20-plus aspects of, 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 of plumbing you can tie into your application, ideally, all classes should be WCF services. Because then immediately you benefit from all these 
features. And you have to understand, WCF, all that list of features kicks in at every class. You don't have to do anything about it. Okay? Okay. So far so good? Yeah. So we agree that ideally that would be the case, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't agree. I mean, that's, what you're, that's the argument you're making. I'm still right. waiting no, for that, it. I'm, right. And so would you rather have your developers handcraft security, handcraft synchronization, handcraft transactions? No, 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 no. But um, no, no. You, you, so, you just asked me to agree that all s- classes should be... No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying that ideally in an ideal world where all these things are free and everything else, you would rather have these things for free and not have developers do it. We go on that point? Okay, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. you don't want to... Yeah. I agree that you don't want to spend all your time doing plumbing. As right. little as possible. Sure. Absolutely. And so the best technology we have for doing that today is WCF, which gives you every conceivable aspect of the plumbing. This is just what it is. So ideally, I would like to use it at every level I can because it's wrong to write plumbing at the enterprise level. It's wrong to write plumbing at the system level. It's wrong to write plumbing at the subsystem level, it's wrong to write plumbing at the class level. At any level of plumbing, nobody cares. People want the features. They don't want the plumbing. It's just the reality, nature of the beast. Now, every listener to the show immediately asks, okay, I understand about that, but of course the question that nags in everybody's mind is, what about performance? Right? I mean, surely if you make every class a service, performance is going to suck, right? These things are not free. And the reality is that in most cases, and I'm not talking about every application, just saying about regular business applications, as long as performance is adequate, nobody actually cares about it. You see, it doesn't really matter if you can do it better. The question is, is it good enough? Yeah, this, yeah. Well, nobody cares about performance until they don't have it. Of course, if not, if it's not, if it's inadequate, you have to do something about it. But in most cases, performance is adequate. What does it mean? If you look, say, at, uh, uh, let's do a, a mental experiment here, right? Suppose you're the technical lead of a project, and you go to the manager and you say, we've already met the performance goal for the product. With the remaining of the time, we can do two things. We can improve performance by, say, 200%. We've got some ideas on how to do that. Or we can meet the schedule by, say, 20% sooner. Which one would you rather I actually do? And the manager would say... Meet the schedule. Of course, right? The manager doesn't care about performance because it's already adequate. Right? We also agree that as long as it's adequate, nobody cares. Now, if you look historically at how the software industry has evolved, there's one trend that always, 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 always comes to mind whenever you switch generations. In fact, if you don't see that trend, people don't switch. And that trend is that we always, always trade performance for productivity. And if we cannot make that trend, we don't move for the next big thing. I, I suppose it depends on what kind of application you're writing. There are some applications where performance is the most important feature. No, no, and, 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 and I... I qualified it already by saying we're talking about a business application. We're not talking about doing Google here. All right. We're not talking about doing a device driver here, okay? All right. Um, look, I said about the trend. I mean, can you do any application in the world using something like, say, .NET? And the answer is no. You cannot do Google in .NET. You probably can't even do device drivers in .NET, right? But for business applications, .NET is good enough, right? If you look historically at how technologies have evolved, Every time we switch, we do that trade. I mean, C++ is a lot faster than .NET. So how come developers mm-hmm. are not using C++? Mm. Right? Because it's painful. It's not as easy as productive as .NET. So you do a trade of performance for productivity. Right? Now, the certain application you still have to do in C++, even today. But a regular business application, yeah, you can do with .NET. Because you take the productivity benefits of .NET over the performance of C++, even though C++ blows up .NET probably by orders of magnitude, many Mm -hmm. orders of magnitude, Mm -hmm. right? Now, this is not specific for just the movie to .NET. If you look, say, historically over the last, say, 40 years, let's go back to, say, 1973, where the industry moved from assembly to, say, C, right? 
all the C, all the uh, assembly developers were scoffing at C at the time. They were all saying, you know, you can write much better assembly by hand. The assembly generated by the C compiler is brain dead, right. and you can handcraft it, right, much better. And they were absolutely correct. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their Rad Control Suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. I think we can all agree that. In, in business applications, .NET it rules the day. That's right. And yeah. then if you move from C to C++, again, C++ is a preprocessor for C, and they've got this reference and virtual tables. C++ is slower, but you'd rather have the abstractions of objects. And then if you move from C++ to COM, COM with all these apartments and messaging and, and, and IDL and proxies and type libraries and all that stuff is a lot heavy-handed compared to C++ by mm-hmm. orders of magnitude. But you do want the ability to drop an ActiveX on a VB form, right? You do want the ability to embed Excel inside Word. And then if you look at COM versus .NET, COM is much faster than .NET. But you would rather take the benefits of .NET. So every time we switch... A technology generation, we always do that trade. In sure. fact, it's a prerequisite for making that trade, right? Yep. Now, I can tell you that in the middle of the 90s, I said every class should be a COM object. People said, the guy's crazy, right? He's a smart guy, but, you know, ooh, ooh, it's a bit strange. What does it mean every <laughs> class is a COM object, right? Now, a few years go by, and in 2002, we have .NET. And in .NET, lo and behold, every class is a COM object. Right? We know that. In fact, it's much more than COM because we've got the JIT compiling, we've got the garbage collection, we've got the security stack work of Codex security, plus the GUID, the lookup from the registry. Well, you should clarify that, though. I mean, every object is not a COM object. Every object has the capabilities that a COM object does, but the, dot, the .NET framework isn't a COM library. No, no. First of all, .NET is actually built on top of COM. Okay? It's all COM underneath. Well, what, what do you mean by that exactly? If you look at all the things that COM is doing, binary compatibility between components, um, dynamically loading the component at runtime, figuring out where it is, unique ID for every uh, class, uh, where you load it for some kind of a global repository uh, at runtime, uh, versioning resolution at runtime, um, separation of interface implementation, uh, calling everything through a virtual uh, uh, table. All the stuff that COM is doing, Dotan is also doing. But that doesn't mean it's built on COM. I mean, it interrupts with COM, but... No, no, I'm not saying... You're missing my point. Apparently. All the things that COM is doing... Suppose, suppose, suppose this is 1996, and I'm telling you every class should be a COM object. Yeah. You're saying, yeah, but what about performance? I mean, it's all the stuff that COM is doing. And I'm saying, mm-hmm. look, it's better for you productivity-wise, right? So all the things that COM was doing at the time, Dotant is also doing plus more today for every class. Yeah, I, I get that. I'm, my question was, my question was is, is .NET built on COM? Of course, it's all COM underneath. Really? What do you mean by that? All, .NET is all built together using COM. No, I know it's intertwined. I know it's intertwined, but, and, it, and it's required. But when you, when you new up a .NET object, you're not creating a COM object. You're creating a .NET object, but... All the things that .NET is built underneath, it's all C++ and COM. It is C++, but you're not registering a COM object through the COM interfaces and all that stuff, unless you specifically do that. The framework itself is using COM underneath. But that's besides the point. Forget about how it's made. Okay. If you compare .NET 
to calm, which do you think is better in performance? Uh, well, that's your point is taken. Yeah, calm is certainly. And, and in the machines of the day, you know, performance was more of an issue. Right. Because they just, we didn't have machines like we do now. That's right. Yeah. And so imagine you took my advice in 1996 and you made every class be a calm object. Dotnet comes along. All of a sudden, you're in heaven because all your legacy code interoperates back and forth with .NET with basically zero impact, right? Every legacy class you have can be consumed by new clients, and every new client, every new object you have can even be consumed by legacy clients, right? Because of this wonderful interoperability. So I think we can establish the fact that every time there's a switch, we do that trade, right? Mm-hmm. Now, my statement is not really that every class should be service in every uh, application. My statement is, okay. if you can afford to use .NET in your application, you're already so many orders of magnitude removed from the actual hardware. And you already made so many trades over 40 years to mm-hmm. getting that point. Take the extra step and also buy into all the plumbing aspect it gives you. Yeah. And that's really the, the linchpin lynch, uh, argument. You see, I'm not <laughs> saying that WCF is free. I'm saying real applications simply never notice it, even used at the most granular level. And I can actually share with you some numbers and some benchmarks I did. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear that, but I just want to say that I'm a little bit relieved because, you know, it, it sounded a lot crazier that, you know, from the title than you are actually explaining it. You know, when you, if you limit the scope of your uh, applications and objects to business objects, then, of course, then, of course, WCF, uh, that's what it does. Yeah, that's where that's, it, that's where its plumbing is is working out the best. But if you say every object should be a, a WCF service, okay, well, every object isn't limited to business objects. Yes, I'm limiting it, of course. Okay. Now I can tell you there's another thing. You're just shock me. value, that's all. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, <laughs> look, if you, if you listen to what just one thing I say, not the whole thing, then it's out of context, right? Well, okay, but the title is pretty much, the title of the talk is pretty much what, you know, what we're going on here. Right. So if you look at the subtitle, it usually says something like WCF as the new .NET, right? Yeah. That's usually what, why I'm saying that. Now, there's another set of arguments that lead us to believe this is actually uh, more than a utopian uh, uh, dream. It's something that is probably the future of .NET itself. Because if you look, at again, at the evolution of software uh, generation, there's another trend that manifests itself um, not necessarily every time you jump, you have to take a step back at two or three generations. And that is that every idea in software always manifests itself in three waves. First, there's the methodology. Then comes the technology. Then comes the platform. All for the same idea, but it always comes in three waves. So to give you some some examples, if you look, say, at... Uh, assembly development in the 60s. You really have to wait for C to do structured programming? And the answer is no. If you're a disciplined assembly developer, you can write beautifully structured code, but not every assembly developer was that disciplined. C comes along, and all of a sudden, you get beautiful structured code, as long as you don't use go-tos and such, without mm. doing anything about it. Mm. Then you're all into the 70s, and you have to really have to wait for the 80s to do object orientation? The answer is no. In the 70s, people figured out how to do great OO. Now, it's not easy if you do crazy things like passing for every function mm. handled to a structure, and the structure contains the state of the object. You never go and bounce on, on global variables. You just yeah. go to the handle. And you can even have inheritance where you arrange all your functions in the tables with pointer to those functions, and you actually go and look up the pointer before you invoke any function. And if you want to override and have inheritance, you just reach the entry in the table. Of course, the syntax is a syntax from hell. It looks like star, parenthesis, parenthesis, star, close parenthesis, Pointer, star, close parenthesis, function name, close parenthesis, close parenthesis, close parenthesis, pointer, right? Mm. But, you know, you get inherited that way. Right. But not many few developers were that zealous OO heads that they would actually invest the time in structuring the code like this. C++ comes along, all of a sudden, every developer can write OO. Now, C++ alone is, is, is sterile. It doesn't do anything. You have to write, you know, pretty much anything by hand. And so in the late 80s, early 90s, every tech lead was walking around with a floppy, a real floppy, the kind you can actually sit on, mm. that had things like safe arrays, for an exception if you go out of bound, and 
classes that are actually wrappable strings. You can do concatenation and such, or linked list and such, because you need all of that when you're writing code. The language itself gave you nothing, right? There was no platform. Of course, it doesn't really work well if everybody comes up with their own platform reinventing the wheel. So if you look at the early 90s, what really liberated C++ on the Microsoft platform was MFC. MFC is actually a C++ platform. It's not just about Windows application. It has the safe arrays and a C string and a C object, which is the base class for everything, and a C document and a C archive. And it's got serialization. It's got all these wonderful things as a platform. So, so MFC really liberated C++ on the Microsoft platform, but it took you know, almost 15 years from the very early attempts to do it in C as a methodology to the uh, 80s where you had the technology to the platform in the early 90s. But by then you realize that you know, objects are not really the best thing. You really need binary components. And you could actually create DLLs and assign them unique IDs and load them using class factors and do all of it by hand, but most C++ developers were never that committed for the idea of components as a separate from idea from objects. And so if you were a diehard component-oriented guy, you would do it, but not many did. Com comes along in the late 90s, all of a sudden, everybody has a technology for doing components. But by then we realize, you know, all this pain of doing components, and you still have to actually derive from ATL, and there's really no uh, framework behind it. And then we have in the early 2000s, we have .NET coming along, all of a sudden, it's a component-oriented framework where you do nothing. You declare a class, and all of a sudden, it's actually it's a full-fledged binary component. It is not a class in the C++ sense of the word. It's a binary component, but the syntax is, is deceptive. It looks like a class and everything else. You do a new. All the kung fu you have to do in com goes away. You don't have to define IDs and GUIs, none of that. And you get beautiful components, and you got 12,000 other classes to rely on in the various namespaces. It's a beautiful platform. But by then, we begin to realize that, you know, components are nice, but we really need the services. But in the early 2000s, you know, you couldn't really do service orientation. You, you have to be a Clemens or a Michel to even take a crack at these things, right? It's so insanely complex. And then in the middle of the 2000s, 2006, 2007, we get WCF. WCF is a wonderful technology for doing the methodology, being service orientation. You declare a class, you put two attributes on it, boom, you got a service. But by now we look at all the things that uh, WCF still asks us to do. We have a host and a client and a proxy and config file and all that stuff. And we say, you know, what we really need is things like a service-oriented language and a service-oriented platform. Much like C-sharp is not object-oriented, it's component-oriented. The very basic constructs are component-oriented, they're not merely object-oriented. And so the next logical step would be a service-oriented platform, something that basically succeeds .NET. And I don't think that the historical trend that I can just literally point at it across so many decades is going to stop right now. We are never going to have a service-oriented platform. In fact, if I were to extrapolate what is going to replace .NET, and I'm sorry to shock the listeners by raising the possibility that .NET will one day be replaced, but I assure you .NET will one day be replaced. Do we at least agree on that point? Ruby. Yeah. Yes. Ruby? No, I'm just kidding. Yes, it would be. Yes. <laughs> you know, our grandchildren are not going to be programming in .NET, and every technology has, you know, an expiration date. I foresee a technology that proceeds along this very trend that provides a platform of service orientation where every contract is a service. And that sounds familiar because I'm saying every contract should be a service. Now, why is it important to do it today? Because if you look historically at how Microsoft supports its legacy goo, it provides typically two levels of support. One is interoperability, the other one is integration. With interoperability, mm -hmm. you can kind of like jump through hoops and make things kind of work, you know, pre-invoke into DLLs, hope and pray, and maybe it's going to work. Right. Interoperability, you do nothing and the magic just works, right? Like consuming a com object in .NET, right? Yeah. It's always the preferred sun, right? And so... If you look at why Microsoft is able to support integration as opposed to interoperability, it's typically got to do with automation. The reason you can actually do it with uh, COM into .NET but not with C++ into .NET is because the type system of C++ is open-ended. It's void spa. You know, it's anything you can say. And in, in, in VB, it's iDispatch. Yeah, right. What does it mean? But... COM is, is closed type system. It's anything you can express in IDL. There's only so many keywords in IDL, and that's it. Well, .NET is also a closed type system. 
If you have two closed type systems, you can write automatic mappers that map from one environment to the next. Voila, you got automatic integration between com and .NET both ways. We also have a preferred son moving into WCF, and that is enterprise services. In enterprise services, every service component, anything that derives from the service component class, is immediately, without any changes, a WCF service. And every WCF service can be consumed by a .NET client as if it is a service component. Now, there was a brief moment in time between, say, 2002 and 2006, I kept saying every class should be a service component for exactly the same set of arguments. If you were to follow my lead then, then you would move to WCF with the same ease as if moving from COM to .NET. Now, since WCF is based on some 20 standards, mm. let's say how the plumbing should actually behave when it comes to security, reliability, metadata, transactions, and such. Right. I expect that if we're going to have a platform that has all these standards baked into it, if you make use of WCF at a very granular level, your move to a futuristic platform would be painless as possible. There's another benefit if you project from the past in that respect. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, I wonder where parallelism fits into all this as well, because I think ah. that's the thing that we're currently carefully coding ah. around and, you know, is ultimately going to lead <laughs> to new tools. Oh, yeah, you're just, you're just throwing more meat in front of yeah, the lion here. Because oh, well, yeah. obviously you, you're hungry, Yuval. I could tell. <laughs> I mean, I haven't had some protein this morning, yes. So... Here's what's going on in, in parallelism, okay? There's two nasty, vicious forces going on right here. The first is that developers don't know how to do concurrent programming. It's right. It's difficult. It takes years of experience. If you haven't done it for, you know, with a decade of experience, you're still making mistakes. It's horrible, right? And we can probably assert that it's not going to change. I mean, the level of skills of developers when it comes to concurrent programming is not going to change automatically overnight across the industry. That's not going to change, right? Yeah, but no different than memory management. True. Same problem. Uh, I, I, yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting yeah. there. <laughs> the next thing that's going on is that Moore's law is no longer correct right. as stated. What does it mean? Moore was uh, an Intel executive in the 70s, and he stated Computing that power. every two years, the number of uh, cycles uh, uh, per second doubles, and every three years, the, the cost of memory is halved. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not what he said. He said computing power doubles. He said every 18 months, the number of transistors on the die would double for the same right. amount of money. Yes, I agree. And, right? and it was so a much I'll, I'll, the thing is, it's been projected into all these other things like doubling the amount of memory, da 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 da. da. But really, I, I, it, the original statement was we're going to be able to cram more and more components on the same circuit. I, I agree. All right, go okay. ahead. So here's, here's what. What's going on? If you look at the plot, you go to you know the uh, your favorite hardware store and you say every January first, what's the fastest laptop you have? And you plot it on a graph. You see that computers are simply not getting any faster, right? Yeah. We've stalled it around two point five three gigahertz, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We, number we, of tipped, we tapped for four gigahertz at one point. We did well. Yeah. And then we decided that it was better that our houses don't burn down. And so we better back yeah, off so one on problem, the... One problem is indeed the removal of heat. In fact, on the average CPU today, the heat flux is greater than the surface of the sun. Hmm. Right? right. Well, you, that's when the people were making videos where they were cooking eggs on their processors and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean... It literally, it, cooking eggs on their processors. It's and, crazy. you know, if you make it any smaller, the heat flux would go exponential, right? Yeah. The other problem is that the gates to be faster have to be smaller. If they're going to be any smaller, we're going to be in to see... Uh, quantum physics effect. The electron is most of the time there. It's not really there, right? I mean, we don't know how to actually yeah. make non-Turing non machines work. The other problem is that to make it smaller, the way they're making the chips is, of course, they use light, lights of ray as chisels and basically, you know, zap a wafer with light, right? But we can't, like, to make it smaller, we have to use non-visible light anymore and, you know, that would either kill everybody working there if you're going to use X-ray 
And okay, so we're getting off on a tangent, but needless to right. say, it's it's all about more processors on the right. die and now. So what Intel has been doing now is they've been simply cramming more processors. In fact, Intel yeah. has plans for 256 CPU, which is actually a, a grid of uh, 16 by 16, and a 1024 CPU, which is a grid of 32 by 32. They're going to give us all these uh, uh, CPU-abundant uh, CPUs literally around the corner. Now, suppose you give a 256 CPU, uh, 256 core CPU to the average developer, what it would look like. I'll tell you what it would look like. One CPU, uh, so one CPU is going to be red hot and all the others are going to be completely idle, right? <laughs> well, now you've got one CPU dedicated to Outlook, <laughs> another CPU dedicated to Facebook, <laughs> and but then one po- CPU that's running all of Studio. Oh, that's awesome. Right, so, but the point is they will not be able to take advantage of the hardware, right? right? They simply don't know how to write parallel algorithm on everything else. So here's a crazy idea for you, okay? It will sound completely nuts until I'm done with the argument here. Imagine every class is a service. I mean, imagine for that matter, every integer and every string is a service, okay? Now, Sounds crazy so far. Okay, now, One of the things WCF does is intercepting every call, right? Now, yeah. there's advantage from an architectural standpoint of making every integer a service and every string a service because then I would get automatically things like transactional integers and secure strings. And there's some other advantages, of course, but from the architectural standpoint, we're going to intercept every call. And one of the ways we could parallel everything automatically is you would still write your code as if it's going to be linearly executed in a serialized manner, kind of like Computer Science 101, what developers are being taught to do. And then we fit it through this massively uh, complex new runtime that basically intercepts every call to every integer and every string and every call to every class, dispatches those to the hundreds of CPUs you have idling by there, makes sure everything executes concurrently. If there's any conflict, flushes it out, does it again, consolidates the results, and back to the beginning of the loop. Right? It can be done that way. Now, of course, on today's hardware, that would be prohibitively expensive. But if you have a 1024 core CPU, what the hell, you know? It doesn't matter. It's either that or not. There's nothing they're going to do anyway. Yeah, you're, you've got lots of processing power here. You, you might as well take advantage of it and, and just make that stuff natural. In fact, if, since there's only so many possible uh, branches at the end of every loop, you might as well run in parallel all the ones that may or may not branch out, Right. And at the end of the loop, you check if the if is that, and you take the other branch and you flush all the others, right? I mean, you can do these crazy things. But for that, you need to intercept every call at the very granular level, the most atomic level, a call to every class, to every integer, and everything else. Now, we cannot do this kind of a thing in regular .NET. But in a world where every class is intercepted using something like WCF and every integer is a service, it becomes doable. I also foresee that we won't be able to use .NET as it is at some point, we're probably going to have to even use a new version of Windows for this kind of a massively parallel execution. Because let's face right. it, I mean, what, what would Task Manager with 1024 CPUs look like? I mean, Windows wasn't designed for these things. That's why you need and a bigger so, monitor. <laughs> you need a bigger monitor, yes. And so the operating system itself would have to be uh, uh, designed uh. in a highly parallel manner. The runtime we're going to use is going to be different. But it's going to be something very reminiscent of every class as a service as far as the interception and the aspect we can put on top of it. So there you have it from another angle altogether. I, I think the, the, you're also seeing this in high-performance computing, this idea that we, we may be doing our development on these 16-core machines and 32-core machines, but when you actually ship it to the server, there'll be 124 core, or, you know, 1,024 cores, and you, but you can't possibly code that. It's just got to happen. It's got to be invisible That's to you. It's got to happen. In fact, you're going you're gonna to write your code as if it's executed one line at a time, line 10, line 20, line 30, right? That's kind of a programming model, but everything is going to be parallel for you. It has to, be, it has to happen like this. Well, where do you see the, the stuff like functional programming coming into play that, you know, behaviors that seem to lend themselves more to parallelism? Because object orientation really that approach was organized around a single serial process. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that functional programming will have its place here at some point. Um, but I think developers' brains are so ingrained in the uh, 
uh, structured procedural way of doing things. You're probably going to, even if you want to use function, you probably have to hide it somehow and make sure that, again, the runtime will do it for you. Well, and I just wonder when we're going to get the progression there. Because I remember in the, speaking at, at conferences in the 90s, and I'd ask people, how many people here have built a class? And, you know, no hands went up. They were procedure programming with early object-oriented tools. And it's only now that we're finally getting folks that are really into object orientation. And we can see the end of it. It's like it's come to as, as far as it's going to go. And we've got a new set of tools coming up. I completely agree with you. That just means that, you know, for 10 years now, we're going to be preaching about this next generation set of tools. A bunch of object-oriented guys are going to go, eh, why do I care? So, so Jabal, let me... Yuval, let me get back to uh, this idea about everything being intercepted. Is now you said it's not possible with .NET, but you since you can make your own classes, is it feasible that you could develop a uh, a framework using WCF that would massively parallelize, like you're saying here, using .NET today? So WCF already parallelizes everything. So every time we make a call over a WCF uh, channel to a WCF class, the WCF runtime would pick a thread from the I completion thread pool and parallel the call for you. In fact, I, I had an interesting talk about that with the guy who designed and worked with one of the program managers at the parallel uh, uh, programming uh, technology for .4.0, and I said, look, I'd like to write a synchronization context for WCF to do it. And we looked at it and we said, no need, WCF is already doing it. You're already there. Now, the real problem with making every class as a service is not the, uh, uh, the, implementa- is not the uh, performance overhead and such, because it's already good enough. The problem will be the ownership overhead, because WCF was never designed with this level of granularity in mind. It was designed to be used at the gateway of systems, right. maybe in between layers, not at every class. So I actually had developed a whole set of... Uh, helper classes and, 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 and tools to make that happen. I literally have a wrapper class that uses your class as a type parameter, and you still use new with C-sharp and everything else, and boom, you're now using it over WCF. There's no need to create a host. There's no need to create a proxy or a client or a client config file or define endpoints or have a main method, none of that. You just write what looks to you like normal C-sharp, but in fact the calls are dispatched over WCF. And this is the other thing you have to bear in mind when you hear me talking about every class as a service, that is, I have the technology for enabling it. I would not dare to do it using raw WCF. Mm. I mean, if you, if you try and look at an average system that has, say, you know, 300 or 500 classes in it, and try and make every class a service using raw WCF, you end up with a main method with 500 hosts in it, which, of course, would be the main method from hell, and a config file with 500 uh, endpoints and 500 classes and 500 class sections with 500 endpoints, which would give you the config file from hell, Right. It's totally unownable in raw format, but I have the factories and helper classes to actually push you to that level of granularity. Okay. The only frustration I really have with WCF, Yuval, is its adoption rate seems rather low. People aren't using it for all of the strength that it has. That's right. And you can also say the same thing about WPF and WF. And I believe for the same reason exactly. Really? Yes. Because... All these three massively fee-changing technologies share an attribute, and that is they break the mold of how you develop code. Interesting. And both do it in exactly the same way. They separate a logical designer from a developer. And each does it in its own way, but they all do it exactly the same way. And all of that is against the grain of how development actually uh, is done in the field today. If you look at WCF, Doing anything in WCF is dead easy. It's just an attribute or a property. But the core of the problem is how to decompose the system into services and what the relationship between them, which is actually the job of the architect. Right, WCF, or a business analyst type. No, no, an architect. It has to be an Somebody architect. It has to be an architect. Somebody understands the trade-off between uh, the scalability, the throughput, the transactions, the security, how right. to look for areas of volatility in the system, encapsulate that in services, how the layers should look like and such. And doing it with WCF would be trivial, but you may spend the bulk of the time doing something else, which is thinking about the system. So it shifts the center of gravity of the problem from doing something to thinking about doing something in the realm of the design of the system. And so there's, you really need 
uh, a professional architect decomposing the system into services. And they need basically uh, developers that are going to just, you know, stitch up uh, some of the code inside and let WCF do the uh, core service uh, work for them. And that's not how it's done today at all. If you look at uh, WPF, what do we see? We see a technology that with a switch of a tag does amazing things in graphics, right? right. Not unlike a property or an attribute in WCF that all of a sudden throws in transactions or security, which is also mind-bogglingly uh, amazing, right? Just like a tag here moves mountains, a tag there moves mountains. Right. What you really need mm -hmm. is a visual designer, a graphical designer, somebody who understands the ergonomic aspect and the saturation and the transitions and how you should really leverage WCF not to make just Windows forms out of it, but something that is compelling and appealing and wraps the text around the image in a way that lends itself well to the flow of the uh, visual experience, right? And let's face it, most developers completely suck at it, right? Yes. I mean, I like to say to developers who think they're doing good user interface, I start by asking them, what do you think about the code that a, a graphic designer would write, right? Somebody you know is into graphics. They would say, oh, they probably write shitty code. I say, yes. What do you think about the UI done by a developer, right? It, yeah. it, it's, the same, it's the same argument, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it, so, I, I mean, to put it more politely, because I am yes. a Canadian here, so let me throw a little <laughs> Canadianism in. There is a distinctively different set of skills for designing good-looking graphics as plumbing them, as, big, as hooking them up to the data. True. There is a distinctively different set of skills from designing services to hooking them up in code. That's yeah. right. And then if we look, say, at WF, WF requires having a business early, someone who understands what is the business for, what are the core activities, what are the fallbacks. Somebody who really understands what the customers want, which is not necessarily the, the developer. And you right. need somebody that helps you de de decompose the system into logical workflows and individual activities and their transitions and their fallbacks and errors and persistence and such. And then at the very end, you need some developer to plug in the code, slash, slash, implement this activity here, right? So in all three technologies, the same thing is happening. We see a separation between uh, a, a logical role of a designer versus the developer. Right. And in the field today, this is simply not how it's done. Most software organizations do not have a graphical designer working side by side with developers. And most organizations would love to have, but they simply do not have world-class architects to understand how to decompose systems into uh, services and modules. And most systems and most developers don't have the luxury of high-end business analysts working as part of the team, right? So it's exactly the same problem. And until we actually address the core problem, we can do demos, the TechEd and DevConnection till, till the end of days showing the uh, merit and power of these technologies, but it's not how it's done in the field. Yeah, and, it, and it comes down to not having those particular sets of skills because without WCF, those design decisions still get made, but they get made by the developer along the way. That's right, as they handcraft one aspect of the plumbing after another. Do you right. think or the, the user interface is done as developers put one property in the Windows form after another, right? So it's you like, think the complexity and configuration that a lot of people complain about is really not, you know, syntax, but uh, just semantics. what decisions to make in the first place? Yes, and and most organizations, most of organizations, still have the scars of software development in the 80s and the early mm -hmm. 90s where you literally needed an army of ants to address the social problems, right? Yeah. And so, you know, software development, we know it's labor-intensive. And organizations grow, and managers develop their empires, and all that stuff that happens is along that culture. Now come these technologies which say, no, 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 you need a drastically smaller and radically different teams. And that's not the teams we actually have. I, um, I... Can't argue with you here, man. I mean, what's yeah. the interesting thing about this is that you said, you know, often people have the title of architect, but they got it by being the most senior guy in the room who was at least willing to make some decisions mm. about how stuff got made. They may or may not have the skills to really think through stuff like designing services. I agree. And, and so, of course, we also see another trend, which is the it's typically the same guy just getting older in the same chair, right? It's kind of like in the early 90s, the 90s being called the uh, 
the technical lead now, we call those guys architects, but nowadays they also take on some process responsibilities as well, right? And so I, I see something else interesting happening, which I see the role of the architect maturing into being the de facto technical manager of the project. And by a technical manager, I don't mean a Dilbert-style manager with pointy hair and paper pushing. I mean somebody who takes an active leadership role in process, in design, and in technology. And right. that person is, for all intents and purposes, the technical manager of the project. And if you look at what you have to do as far as technology, you have to be a good technical lead today if you're an architect. And developers, when it comes to technical leadership, that also has changed because developers used to need a lot of help in how to do something. Now they don't need help in how to do anything. They just Google, they find some, some guy's blog, take the first entry from Google, that must be good enough, and they plug that in their code, right? Hmm. So the how to do is, is fairly easy today. What developers need a lot of help with is the what. They just need help in what to do, right? And a good architect leads them in the what to do. The process leadership is very important because most uh, developers either don't care or not experienced enough to do process. Most managers, as we know, don't care. So almost by elimination, it's up to the architect to take an active role in process. And by process, don't necessarily mean endless staff meeting with status reports. I'm talking about deciding how the services are going to be integrated, what's the dependency between them, estimating the effort, um, identifying critical paths in execution, realizing if one requirement changes, what will be the impact on the schedule or the cost because of the change you have to propagate to other services, uh, planning the project. All these things are process-related, and the architect has to do it, which means you have to take an active role in being a process lead. Right. And the other one, of course, is design. Uh, if, because these technologies shift the center of gravity so much from doing something to thinking about something, you have to invest a lot upfront in designing the system, in analyzing the requirements, decomposing into services and such. You're not going to be the architect doing it. So the, the same guy, he or she wears those three hats. They may do more or less of each logical role throughout the phases of the project, but they actually bear all three responsibilities. Awesome. So, Yuval, one of the things I do now when we record shows is that I hop on Twitter and I say, hey, we're interviewing Yuval Lowy. And I usually get a few interesting tweets and things back from folks saying, don't forget to ask about this and so forth. But I got I got a weird one here, man. And maybe you can make sense of this. It's from a guy named Rick Garibay. <laughs> and he said, and I quote, ask Yuval for a bathtub and razor blades analogy. Uh-huh. Dude, what are you doing in your spare time? <laughs> now, he's referring to a point I made before, that uh, developers don't, knew, don't know how to do concurrent processing. Okay. So he remembers a quote, or, or he remembers a statement I made in the early 2000s, and I first realized that Microsoft in .NET is going to give VB developers access to a concurrent environment. I said this is like giving razor blades to babies. Nice, nice. And, you know, if you give a baby a razor blade, the immunity is going to chop off all these fingers, right? It doesn't mean that razor blades are bad. It just means you don't give them to babies, right? Now, it's not that the C++ guys were any better off. They were just more accustomed to blood. <laughs> <laughs> they were bleeding every hour of every day. That's right. And you end up with a bloodbath, right? That's probably what Rick is referring to. That's funny. Yeah, that is funny. Well, that brings us to about the end of the show. I got to admit, um, you know, when I heard the topic of your talk, I was like, oh, come on, that's crazy. And, of course, you know, hearing the explanation, I realized that you were just, you know, doing the New York Post headline deal, you know, New York City on fire. And then when, you know, somebody gets there with a fire truck, it's like, oh, it's just this block. It's just my house. I didn't really mean that, but it does make a lot of sense, and it's always always a pleasure to talk to you, Yuval. And this is actually a point that uh, I drive home in a seminar I do called the Architects Masterclass, where I focus on the core set of skills acquired of today's uh, modern software architects, just what we just discussed. And it's a five-day class where I talk about the things that nobody talks about. So if you talk about architecture, nobody talks about how to become a technical lead or a process lead or a design lead, and how to talk back to managers, and how to analyze requirements, and how to mechanize 
process and design decisions. And I have an intense uh, five days class, and I believe uh, I'm pestering Richard to join the May class, right, Richard? Yes, sir. And uh, that's going to be May 10th in uh, California. And virtually all the things we discussed uh, in this uh, talk are going to be uh, in that uh, seminar as well. Excellent. Well, you can get more information about that at idesign.net. And uh, thanks again, Yuval. My pleasure, guys. We'll see you at the, at the launch, and we'll see you next time on Donnero. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.